Hey there, it is always a pleasure to be with you online. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And today's passage is all of chapter 21. So go ahead and buckle up as we hear now God's word for us. And what I'm gonna do that's a little bit different when I'm reading this text is I'm gonna take a short pause in some of those breaks, just allow us to reflect on what we've just heard read. Okay, so here now God's word for us from Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one here, one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves. 
lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your timely words to your people who gathered around you in the first century as you taught them on the Temple Mount. Guide us now in the 21st century as we seek to continue to follow your guidance, your wisdom, and have a deeper discernment as to what it is you are seeking to communicate to us today in our, lo our location and our particular callings. We love you, God. We so thank you for speaking into our lives and preserving your words throughout centuries that we might know you more deeply and your kingdom come. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, at the turn of the 20th century, um, scientific advancement, it produced an ethos of unrealistic optimism, such that in 1912, with a mixture of human ingenuity and extraordinary luxury in the construction of the Titanic, some audaciously claimed her to be unsinkable. This belief was on display when the New York office of the White Star Line was informed that the Titanic was actually in trouble. White Star Line Vice President P.A.S. Franklin announced, we place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. Now, the irony of that statement is when he made that claim, the Titanic was already at the bottom of the ocean. And in the end, the unsinkable claims became a part of its mockery. Thompson Beatty, who was a passenger, he wrote home saying, we are changing ships and coming home in a new unsinkable boat. You see, while today it seems absolutely absurd to think that 70,000 tons of steel was unsinkable, yet every age, it has its absurd claims of security that have proved false. We all long for security. Now security is the state of being free from danger or threat. And in our desire to feel secure, we may find ourselves trusting in empty and dangerous promises. And these promises of security have never been so alluring as they are now. I mean, we feel more secure, insecure rather, than ever. We have 24-hour news cycles that are really helpful in certain contexts, Facebook Live and Twitter video feeds on the front lines across the globe. We are more aware of global instability and potential disaster than ever before. And on top of that, we've had a tiny little virus called COVID-19 that has disrupted the life of every person living on the planet and has reminded us all that there is no foolproof guard against danger. So now more than ever, we long for security. We hunger for it. We pine after it. And the real question that faces us is where should we look for security? Where should we go looking? Where can we find the kind of security that not only orders the world around us, but also orders the world within us? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're exploring who this Jesus is, we can actually find comfort in knowing that Jesus powerfully speaks of and to our longing for security. 
And while in today's text, as we heard in Luke 21, Jesus was speaking to his earliest followers, the pattern he laid out in this text shows us where every follower of Jesus must find their security in the centuries thereafter. And it has something to do, frankly, with Jesus and his kingdom. But before we jump in, I want to remind us as to where we've been. We're walking through the gospel account of Luke, seeking to rediscover Jesus' kingdom, a central theme in his teaching and ministry. And we're we're seeking to rediscover his kingdom to know how to join it, what it looks like to be for his kingdom come, how we participate in what he's doing. And then Luke, he ends all of Jesus' teaching here in his gospel account with this audacious claim that relativizes every other claim of security. And here's the claim. Only Jesus' kingdom will be standing in the end. Okay, maybe that's not very surprising. Um, But then again, maybe it is. Um, But what's most surprising, as I was wrestling through this text, is where Jesus says we should not go looking for security. And then what a life that is secure in his kingdom come actually looks like. So if you're eager for this security that Jesus offers, let's take a look together. Turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21. And what we're going to see first are three surprising areas of false security. First, Jesus, he reveals three of the most common areas we go looking for security that all fall short. And the first area we go looking for security is, number one, the most divine of religion, the most divine of religion. Actually, you know what's fascinating? One of the most abhorrent things that Jesus says, we can't even begin to feel the ramifications or the weight of that for us today in 21st century modern culture. Look with me, chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. Again, Jesus says, or we see in the text, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is an audacious statement because the temple was the very center of Israel's worship. This is where heaven and earth met. This is where God dwelt on earth. The God of heaven, his throne touched down in the most holy of places in the temple. God had instituted the sacrificial system and he'd anchored it here in the temple. Yes, God had allowed the temple to be destroyed, you know, in previous days of Israel's history. But that was the past. In this moment, in the first century, this was a moment of Israel's restoration. This is the time to rebuild. And that's exactly what was happening. Herod the Great was in the process of rebuilding the second temple. And it was extremely painstaking process. It started in 20 BC and it continued until AD 63, around 64. So at this point, it's around AD 30. It's right in the middle of its construction process, but it's already one of the many wonders of the world. Nations from around the world had contributed to its reconstruction. And so, of course, every Israelite at this point, because of its history and God's work through the temple and the national and global investment, thought, surely this is a great place of security. And then Jesus, he throws a wrench in everything and he says that the temple will be utterly destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another. I mean, this is unthinkable. This would have felt like the world was coming to an end, that creation was coming undone, that God had indeed abandoned his very central promises, which is why you find some of this drastic language here in Jesus's teaching in Luke chapter 21. So why does Jesus say this? Why does he say the temple is going to come crumbling down? 
Well, the temple, which was once a symbol of God's presence, now actually represented the rejection of Jesus, God incarnate among them. Over and over again, the leaders and the people actively rejected the kind of Messiah Jesus claimed to be and what he came to do. They enjoyed engaging the rituals quite religiously, but they didn't want the kind of Jesus represented in their everyday lives. They wanted the security that, that they assumed came with God's presence, but they didn't want Jesus to look into their corrupt practices and actually flip their tables, as we saw in Luke chapter 19. Jesus' proclamation is abundantly clear for those who follow him throughout history. You can be doing all the right culturally acceptable religious things. You can, you know, I think about 21st century Christianity, right? You, you can be going to church sometimes, sing a few songs, try to give your money to a few good causes, maybe even your church. You have a pretty clean public record. You check all the spiritual boxes. You can have the most divine of religion. But religion, any religion that's not shaped by the cross of King Jesus and his kingdom agenda is guiding you in little more than empty, superstitious ritual. Don't go looking for security there because it'll come falling down one day. So that's the first area of false security. And after Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, they ask, well, when is this going to happen, right? But Jesus never really entertains the when question, which is fascinating. There will be rumors of wars and destruction, and he's going to get more to that in a minute. But first, everyone who's listening to this should actually expect pain and suffering. And what's surprising isn't that there is pain and suffering coming. It's who the pain comes from. For some, it will come from those most naturally connected to us. You see, the second area of false security, number two, is found in the most natural of relationships. Look with me here at verse 16 of chapter 21. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Another primary aspect of a person's identity is their family and community, not just their religion, especially in the first century. I mean, we think of our term, you know, our, ourselves in terms of our personalities first. That's how we tend to define ourselves. I'm this kind of person. But in the first century, in ancient people, they saw themselves in light of their family and their relatives first. And so when you were in trouble, you reached out to your parents. When you were in trouble, you reached out to brothers and sisters or relatives and even friends because friendships came with strings attached and that wasn't seen as a negative thing that was a part of being in a collective culture. And Jesus, he wants them to know that the security he offers is actually not anchored in the most natural of relationships because associating with the cross of Jesus and his kingdom agenda may very well lead to rejection from those who are closest to us. Now to be clear, what Jesus has always been inviting us to is more than a, a kind of casual interest in him. Some years ago, there was a gentleman uh, who was joining our downtown campus community, and he was from India. And he was intrigued with Jesus, and he wanted to give his life to Jesus. There was just one hang-up, um, telling his parents in India. They were fine if Jesus was one of the many gods that he worshipped in Hinduism, but the exclusive claims of Jesus dismantled this as a possibility. And so to truly follow Jesus would disrupt his whole 
family. It was hard to divorce Hindu culture from Hindu religion. Not that it's impossible, but it was very, very difficult. To even try to separate the two seemed absurd. And so to choose Jesus would cause his family to feel like he was rejecting them. His greatest wrestling was whether to rest in Jesus and what he had to come to do or to hold on to his family. Now, I lost touch with him before he settled this issue, so I still don't know where he landed. But that's not unique to other parts of the world. We just often don't see it in our own context. And it's true here in the United States as well. I've heard stories of how families view Christians with skepticism if they actually give money to their church or read their Bible regularly or, God forbid, believe the Bible has more to say toward how they engage broader society than one's political party line. And when the most natural of relationships will not support the most important relationship, you're going to be forced to choose. And where you choose is ultimately where you are finding your security. You see, we're designed to actually find safety and security in these most natural of relationships. But in a broken world, those who love often reject the kind of Messiah Jesus was and is, then we can't, we can't find our ultimate, the ultimate security there. So don't go looking for security there. That's not the ultimate place of security. Because if we do, yes, if there it is devoid of Jesus and the kind of Messiah he is and was, then it'll also come falling down one day. Well, this leads us to our third area of false security, okay? And it comes actually in verses 20 through 24. It's a, it's a part of a text, frankly, that I think the Christian church in the United States doesn't often talk about, but it's really important. Look with me here. Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now one of the final pillars, and where we find our identity or a secure identity is knocked out here. If you were to ask a Jewish person to imagine themselves apart from their nationality, they would look at you not able to comprehend the question you just asked. They didn't think of the religion of Judaism and their nationality as separate, but as two sides to the same coin, such that when God called Abraham, he promised an heir, so a family, a land, right, and a nation, all to call his own. And yet one of the greatest areas of false security is this third component, the most justified of nationalism. You see, Jesus says Jerusalem, the central city of peace in the nation of Israel, will be destroyed. And they are not to do these things. They are not to stay and fight. They are not to go into the city to pray. They are to walk away or even run because this city's fate is sealed. And you have to ask yourself, why? What's going on here? This is Jerusalem. This is God's city. This is God's people. This is Israel. I mean, God had founded Israel out of nothing. And if there was ever a nation under the true God, it was Israel. And yet, even when God's people wanted nothing to do with him, then he will give them over to the chaos of their own making. The nation of Israel wanted nothing to do with her true king, Jesus. 
And to illustrate this, using one of Jesus' own stories later, he talks about how the vineyard owner had leased out his land to tenants. And when, he had sent the, when the landowner had sent his son, they killed him, thinking that they could still have the land without the king. But of course, that's not true. And then suddenly, in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28, we find language similar to what we've seen in the book of Revelation. It's what's called apocalyptic literature, or the picture language of the ancient Near East. And it doesn't mean it's the end of the world, but it is the end of an era. Because the, the destruction of Jerusalem would feel like the end of the world. It would feel like creation was being undone. And when they see Jerusalem fall, this is what Jesus is saying here. When they were to see Jerusalem fall, they are to see Jesus vindicated. They are to see that as a sign that God really is for his king, Jesus. They are to see that anyone who rejects Jesus for who he is and what he came to do will experience the chaos of their own choosing. They are to see this as an affirmation of Jesus enthroned in heaven. And so it's easy to imagine that this is talking of the end of time as if this is sometime way, way, way later, even for us. But notice what Luke says here. Look with me at verse 32. He says, truly, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, there are some who seek, you know, a pretty fanciful interpretation of this text or the word generation. But commentators are in large agreement that Luke is focusing in on the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. And listen, it was awful like atrocious. During the siege by the Roman army, Jewish parents had to eat their own children due to starvation. I can't even imagine that as an experience in life. When Rome broke through, the virtual genocide of countless Jewish families was horrendous. I mean, think back to the moments of national unrest, whether it be the World Trade Center falling down, the Trade Towers falling down, January 6th and the insurrection, the chaos in those moments. Amplify that a hundredfold, a thousandfold. That was the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Does it give us a pattern for how the end of history will play out? Yes, of course. Does Luke believe Jesus will physically return one day? Yes. And he actually highlights that later in a different text. But Luke is focused here on the short-term fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem. This is actually the third prediction in Luke's gospel of the destruction of Jerusalem. The first one happened in chapter 13. The second happened in chapter 19. This isn't some pie in the sky, by and by, someday this will happen. Jesus is making a point that this would happen within all the listeners, those that are actually listening to him teach at that time, their lifetimes. Jerusalem as a city, with all its prestige, will be destroyed. Their misplaced political hopes are being overturned. And all because Jerusalem had rejected Jesus. And so it will cost them in very real ways. You see, Jesus is clear. You can feel like you have the most justified of nationalism, but no institution no nation or community is so privileged that God is not willing to let it crumble under its own idolatry. So don't go looking for security there. It too will come crumbling down one day. Why? What are we to see in all of this? It goes back to that audacious claim that we stated up top. 
Jesus wants to make very clear that only Jesus' kingdom is secure forever. Only Jesus' kingdom is secure forever. It doesn't matter if it's the most divine of religion, the most natural of relationships, the most justified of nationalism. If it doesn't embrace Jesus as king, and by that embrace his kingdom agenda that's shaped by the cross, given enough time, it will crumble under its own chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom feels safe in the here and now. We saw here in our text that suffering is destined for those who belong to Jesus as long as other kingdoms are still at war against his kingdom agenda. But here's the thing. Even that suffering is now seen as an opportunity. It's seen from a slightly different angle, an opportunity to point to the unshakable kingdom of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews, he actually picks up on this when they write, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. For although we may lose our lives, or even our livelihoods, we cannot be robbed our inheritance and his eternal kingdom. And so the eternal life and life abundant he has promised those who are his. Okay. So that sounds all well and good, but what does that mean for the meantime, right? How do we live into the security we have actually in Jesus and his kingdom? Well, number one, we wait. Of course, there's a lot of waiting that happens, but what indeed does this waiting look like? Because we have to wait a certain way, and that's where we get to verses 34 through 36 of Luke 21, where Jesus says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This, this language of watch yourselves, literally it is be always on the watch. This is a command to be constantly attentive. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we are to be constantly watching signs around us and to be anxious about what time we are in. It does not mean that we are to be consumed with the cares of this life such that it weighs you down. And both of those are easy to do, to be constantly assessing the signs, is this the end, or to be constantly consumed with your own cares, paying for your own bills, navigating your own needs to the point that we become obsessed with either of those. Nor is this a solo effort. It's easy to, to read, watch yourselves, and think very individualistically. Oh, I need to pay attention to me and myself. And that's part of it. There is personal responsibility. But this is actually plural. This is in collective cultures would have been understood as a communal affair. People inappropriately butting into your lives and asking, are you awake? Are you paying attention? Do you know where you're going with your life? You see, this isn't just an individual Christian thing. This is a church thing together. And so we are to rather keep a close eye on ourselves. Now, and what I mean by that is we may be really tempted to pass judgment on the world, but listen, the world doesn't claim Christ as king. Those who are not followers of Jesus, we should not have expectations that they carry the values and virtues of our king. But first and foremost, we should be looking inside the church and to other church and other Christians to encourage them in faithfulness to help each other stay awake, ready for Christ's return. Help each other be about Jesus as a kingdom agenda today, wherever we are, whether it be in evangelism, whether it be in justice, whether it be in mercy or forgiveness or love. 
and to help remind each other where their security ultimately resides. Because I want you to imagine Jesus has given them this teaching in the midst of the temple and 35-ish years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Sure, you've heard about other people throughout the Roman Empire who've given their lives to Jesus, but not a lot has changed. People are still mocking you. Where's your Messiah at? I thought he was coming back. It seems like Rome is still in charge. You don't still believe in Jesus, do you? What has changed for the better for you anyway? 35 years has passed and everything seems normal. The temple still stands. Jerusalem tensions heighten. And they're tempted to look back at the old promises of false security. That is, until 70 A.D., when finally Jesus' prophecy rings true. And many of the skeptics who were concerned that Jesus could never be right about such proximate issues felt their own demise and brokenness. So how did the church keep themselves going? It wasn't by isolating and ostracizing one another, but in the same ways, actually, we see across the remainder of the scriptures, the same way we see the church throughout history surviving and continuing on and persevering, it was by listening to Jesus' words here, by watching over each other, by gathering and keeping a close eye on ourselves. What once again the author of Hebrews charges us to do in chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's in praying for strength, Together, encouraging one another, standing by one another, reminding each other that the only place of pure security is in Jesus' kingdom because only Jesus' kingdom is secure forever. And one day, it will come in full. And you want to know who exemplifies this brilliantly? If you go to the beginning of chapter 21, you find a widow who clearly in her generosity is resting in something bigger. When she goes to the temple and gives everything she has. The only reason she can do that is because she's resting in a great security that the God of Israel has her. In her security in him, she is looking for change. She's a widow. She has lost so much of her interconnection in a broader society, and she's longing for God to do something different. So sure, her eyes are looking up, but her faithfulness is very proximate in the context in which she finds herself. And her generosity overflows, resting that God indeed has her. That's security. That's looking to something that is yet to come. That is holding fast to Jesus' kingdom that Jesus himself celebrates. And so we all long for security. We may indeed feel more insecure or more fearful than ever, but we've been invited to rest in the security of Jesus and the hope of his kingdom. And in our commitment to one another, we, the church, spur one another on to hold fast to our hope. We may not come with the same prestige as the Titanic in 1912. It may feel more like a lifeboat at times than a cruise ship. But let me say that the church is a sturdy vessel that will carry us through together till one day the waves will cease and his kingdom will come in full. Then it'll all be worth it as we stand secure alongside of our King, reigning for eternity. What a glorious hope we have. What a place of security. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that you have offered your people both a historical example of the authoritative word in which you spoke, 
The warnings you gave were fulfilled in many ways in A.D. 70. But those warnings ring true for us today in the 21st century. God, may we place our security in you and you alone. May we invest our time and our energy towards your kingdom purposes, knowing that it is only secure forever. God, help us by the power of your spirit to do exactly that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we now turn to a meal, a meal that we will one day feast and enjoy in God's kingdom come in full with our King Jesus. But in the time between, we remember what it cost our King to secure our security through his life and death. And for through common broken bread and juice, this good news is proclaimed to our senses of taste and touch and smell. Through common broken bread, we remember his body broken for us. And through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you have those elements available to you and you have friends or family around you who also are followers of Jesus, bring them together. Take this moment, pause it if you need to, this video right now, and partake in remembrance of him. But before you do, Let's remember what has been handed down to us in the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, Partake in the hopeful meal of the Lord's Supper. 